this is Base Layer, brought to you by Arca. I'm your host, David Nage. This is Base Layer, where institutional investors come to learn about crypto. This is David, and this is your new episode of Base Layer with Uri from Bloxroute. This has got to be one of my most favorite conversations I've had in some time. Uri is so smart and has done so much already. Uh, we talked a lot about what layer zero is. So lots of people in crypto are building layer one, layer two processes. We're working on sharding, working on zero knowledge proofs, working on ways to make things faster with the Bitcoin blockchain, Ethereum, and proof of stake. Ori says, you know, let's actually get the the infrastructure right, the pipes. And so we talked a lot about the early days of the internet. There's this analogy that they have that they use there at Bloxroute uh, with the Akame uh, work done in the early uh, 90s in the internet scaling. So we talked a lot about you know, this layer zero concept and I really am hooked on that. And so we talked a lot about that. We talked a lot about transactions per second and scalability. You know, scalability is the golden goose out there in crypto. How do you actually scale these blockchains? And we talked a lot about that. We talked a lot about the notion of some of these services out there that are trying to censor or trying to block um, nodes. And so we talked about how Bloxfout is working with all these different uh, networks out there that they don't want to do that, that that's not the processes and protocols that they're working with. This is a great conversation. I'm just going to shut up there and just let you guys listen to it. Um, remember, nothing on Baselayer is investment advice, so please do your own research. And on the flip side, you'll hear the conversation with Ori. Enjoy. This is David, and this is your new episode of Base Layer. I have Ori with Bloxroute. How are you, Ori? Good. Thank you for having me. How are you this morning? Doing good. Doing good. So excited to have Bloxroute on. I've had a few friends in the ecosystem tell me about it, and you guys have some amazing investors already. So this is exciting. So Bloxroute, as far as I can tell, is the only layer zero solution that solves a scalability scalability bottleneck at its core it's even hard to say scalability these days right say blocks route and say scalability really fast numerous times and you got all your times like like tied up so scalability is definitely a major issue within blockchain um you know we've had the conversation on the show with many people about transactions per second and about getting things done faster as it relates to some of the unfair correlations to visa and to some of the kind of legacy payment systems out there so would love to hear more about you um you know from a perspective before Blockstrout, just to kind of get a sense of how you came about um you had some really interesting work in regards to scalability um and so i'd love to hear more about you and then we'll talk more about Blockstrout and what you guys are doing and solving that scale scalability issue Sure. So, so I'm the re- like the way we reached to doing blocks route is that I did my PhD uh, in computer science and computer networks specifically at Northwestern University. And while I've heard about Bitcoin and blockchains, I don't know what in 2012 I guess was the first time that I started to get to know this space. I wasn't heavily involved. It was one of those things where it's kind of, oh, it's kind of cool. I don't know if it will ever take place or not, or like will will it become a major thing. But through my work uh, with Professor Kuzmanovich at Northwestern University, it became very apparent for us, being computer networks guys rather than cryptographers, it became very apparent to us that the scalability problem that everybody are talking about is really a networking problem. And while you mentioned that you had so many people in this show like mentioning it, my personal feeling is that people don't good, don't do a good job explaining what is the problem, how it needs to be solved, what are the optional solutions. I feel it's like people are hand waving, oh, scalability, scalability, without really going into what is it that needs to be solved. And I hope to do a better job about that, like in this show. Yeah, I think I would agree with you that everyone talks about scalability scalability issues and you know they talk about as i said the transactions per second and doing things faster and about 
architecture of the blockchain. And so I think you guys are going beneath that layer and you're going to what you said, layer zero. And so we'll learn more about what layer zero is. I would love to kind of, one of the things I ask a lot of the guests that come on the show is a lot of people within the ecosystem get really passionate about the origin story. Um, You know, why, you know, when they read the white paper and they had this awe-inspiring moment, I'm more interested in what about it. When you read about it, when you learned about it, obviously you were at Northwestern and you've been working on this for quite some time in computer science. What about it really signaled to you this was the future? That's an interesting question because if if I'm being very honest, I think that the first time that I read the white the like the Bitcoin white paper, I don't think I fully grasped all like the entire like words of 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 the value proposition of Bitcoin and of blockchains. So I think like when I just got into it, I thought, well, you know what? You know, the banksters, right? The credit card companies, they're taking 3% out of every transaction. And if we can cut that and give back to the world, right? We're saving costs of transacting. 3% out of every transaction, and there are like 5,000 transactions every second, then that's a lot of value that will go back to the world, right? And to whoever uses it. So the current infrastructure kind of like takes the money from the many and move it to the very few at the top. And I thought that was the most major um, 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 value proposition of Bitcoin. And I don't think so today. I think the value proposition has numerous aspects, whether it's can somebody else seize your funds? It's completely different. And you know the entire thing of a capped supply, that's a different value proposition which can come with or without the other pieces of value proposition. So uh, if I'm being very honest with my, with myself, I think that the first time I read the white paper, I didn't have like I didn't grasp it all. I wasn't like I thought, oh, this is the future, but for all the wrong reasons. And the more I spend time in this space, I think now I have like five or six different value propositions I can think of that like I, I feel I have a better grasp of it. Does that kind of make sense? It does. I kind of I think I'm going to call you the digitized Robin Hood. I like the notion of you know, <laughs> that's a good one. Yeah, I think that I, I like that. Um, and so, in doing some research about you guys in preparation for the, the show, I saw this quote that you guys have an analogy to Akamai and the early days of internet scaling. I really love that time period in the early '90s when Tim Berners-Lee gave us the World Wide Web. You know, twenty some odd years of work had done was done prior to that DARPA and creating the 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 connections and creating the, the network itself. But I love kind of the corollaries to the early days of the internet and scaling. So, talk to us about Blocks Route as it relates to Akame, as this kind of analogy that you guys have put out there, as it relates to the early days of internet scaling. Sure, but in order to do that, and it goes back to what I said earlier, let's talk about blockchains for a second. Okay, um, I love how Albert Einstein said that if you can't explain like general relativity to a barmaid in five minutes, then you don't understand it well enough. So my feeling is, and I love that, right? A lot of people try to explain and you give it to somebody who doesn't know what is a blockchain and how it works, and they they have no idea. Um, um, I think the extreme of that is somebody like Craig Wright, regardless what you think of BSV or not, he's got like, oh, just throw tons of like technical jargon at somebody. And even if he knows what he's talking about, he wouldn't be able to understand. So I'm trying to be very on on the other end, on the other end of the spectrum. So in order to explain the analogy to Akamai, et cetera, let's talk about blockchains for a second. Okay, let's talk about if if somebody someone in the audience doesn't know what is a blockchain, how it works, etc., then let's start by explaining to him that so the analogy to our Akamai makes sense. Does that make sense for you? It does. Okay, so let's go with that. So, um, um, taking Bitcoin as an example, right? Bitcoin is a like aims to replace money, right? Let's remove financial middlemen, and Bitcoin will be used as money. It's supposed to be as easy as credit cards, as using a credit card but without paying the credit card companies, you know, the two, 3% out of every transaction. And it aims to allow you to have an account and hold your money without 
the requirement to have an, a bank which holds your account and you pay him fees and he controls your funds. So the way Bitcoin works is that people create transactions to one another. And every so often, special participants in the blockchain who are called miners, they aggregate all these transactions and create a block of transactions, right? So a block is just a long list of transactions. And every so often, a new block is added um, um, or a new block is created. And the result of this process is that you have a long list or a long chain of blocks which contain all the transactions ever to happen in Bitcoin. This chain of blocks is obviously the blockchain, right? Everybody, are, I, there's this phrase, right? The blockchain is a technology that powers Bitcoin, right? Or something. Like, this is like the most confusing phrase you can come up with. No, it's very simple, right? People create transactions, and every so often they are aggregated into blocks. And the blocks don't only contain the transactions that happened, they define which transactions happen, right? If a transaction is included in the blockchain, then it happened. And if a transaction is not yet included in the blockchain, then it didn't happen. And so this is a process that's happening, and this is the blockchain. Now, going from that to the Akamai analogy and the scalability problem, what is the scalability problem? The scalability problem is the fact that every so often a block is mined, right? Some miner creates a block, and if it's POW or if it's POS, then a validator creates a block. But once a block is created, it needs to go to everybody else in the, in the system fairly quickly, right? Everybody needs to, to know that about the current state of the blockchain, which transaction happened and which didn't happen. And uh, so far, does that make sense? Or did I, well, did I go no, super fast? You're hitting on the, you know, the, the notion of the architecture of proof of work and proof of stake obviously being very linear. Obviously, you know, having one block being propagated then to the next and to the next, you have to wait. And that's done, obviously, for some other purposes, but obviously one of the main purposes for security. So no one who is trying to do malicious things can obviously kind of penetrate the whole system. But yeah, the, the notion of propagation in terms of block after block, I think, and the, the kind of the system architecture is, yeah, you're heading in the right direction. Okay, perfect. So um, um, now the idea is that when somebody creates a block, um, if you're talking about BTC, right, Bitcoin Core, then the block size is one megabyte block. The, side, the average transaction today is something like 500 bytes. So one block has room for something like 1,900 transactions. So something like nine, sorry, 1,900, yeah, 1,900 transactions added every 10 minutes. If you do the math, that means that every second, on average, three transactions are added to the blockchain. So if you're trying to think how many transactions can the blockchain process, it really depends on the size of the block and how frequently they come. Again, in Bitcoin or BTC, one megabyte comes every 10 minutes. Now, that block has to go to everybody else. So the next person who, who or the next miner who aims to add a block to the blockchain, he must hear of the current block or the latest block in order to add another block afterwards, right? The next miner doesn't know which transactions are valid and which transactions are invalid unless he knows which transaction took place lately, right? He needs to know if I gave you one Bitcoin, then maybe another transaction, if I try to give somebody else one Bitcoin, that other transaction will be invalid. So in order to add a block of transactions, you must know and the details of all the transactions that happened up until now. This is why it's important for a block to propagate to everybody else fairly quickly. Now, going again to the direction of Akamai, the problem is, is that if you want to do more transactions, right? Bitcoin is doing three transactions per second, but credit card companies are doing 5,000 transactions per second on average. They peak way higher than that, right? Um, Alibaba peaked at 325,000 transactions per second. Okay, so the three transactions per second aren't going to cut it if Bitcoin wants to be a success in replacing financial middlemen. So if you want to do more transactions per second, it's fairly easy. Why do one megabyte block, do 10 megabyte block, or 100 megabyte block, or a gigabyte block, right? But the problem is if you move 
from one megabyte to 10 megabyte box, if I created the block and now I have to send it to everybody else, if you are my peer, if I'm connected to you, now I have to send you 10 times more data, right? I used to send you one megabyte. Now I send you 10 megabytes. It's going to take 10 times longer. And now it's going to take 10 times longer to reach the entire system. And now there is 10 times higher likelihood for a fork to happen in the blockchain. So I mine the block, it's still being propagated. And now somebody else created a new block without hearing of my latest block. So instead of mining on top of it and making the blockchain longer, now we have a split in the blockchain. Now, that is okay. It's part of the way a distributed system works. It's going to resolve itself. But if it happens 10x, it's manageable. If you want to do 100 times larger blocks, 100 megabyte blocks, then at that point, nobody will hear about the previous block in time. Every time I mine a block and I send it to everybody else, somebody else will create a, a competing block right instead of mine. And rather than that being resolved afterwards, then on top of each of these sides of the fork, new forks will be, will, will be, yeah, I, I wanted to keep it simple and I find myself going too technical. The idea is that the bottom, yeah, it, 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 it's a balance going with too many details and not enough details. The problem is that the block has to be sent fairly quickly to everybody else in order for the system to work. But if you do, 10 times larger blocks, it takes 10 times larger, like 10 times longer. Now, 10x still works, but if you try to do 100 times larger, let alone 1,000 times larger, then it doesn't propagate to everybody else fast enough, and the system stops, like, like cease to operate. No, nobody knows which transaction happened and which didn't. Now, this, the idea that you need to take blocks, large blocks or frequent blocks, and send it to everybody else is really a networking problem. The problem is that you have to send a lot of data to a lot of people. And this is where Akamai comes to, the, to, to, to our rescue. Okay? Sending a lot of data to a lot of people in 2019 is a solved problem. Okay? Akamai solved it in 96 with the idea of putting servers very close to the clients. The idea is that Oh, if I want information from the other side of the world, just sending it over the internet is not the most efficient way to do it. A much more way efficient way of doing it is to have a networking infrastructure that makes sure that all the data that you need is located very close to you. If I'm located in Chicago and I want, I go to CNN.com and there is an image there, I don't want to bring that image from CNN servers. Instead, Akamai has a server right here in Chicago next to me, which holds all the, like, it's hosting data for other websites and other parties. So all the images, I can bring them from somewhere which is 10 milliseconds away from me and not 100 milliseconds away. Does that kind of make sense? Or did I go too technical? No, you're, you're, you're hitting on the notion of, you know, the web is actually a web of servers out there. And that's kind of, you know, everyone's getting interconnected. So... You know, it's it's definitely I think we're talking, you know, I know that this, you know, we're talking about layer one right now in terms of things, but you're talking at the layer zero, which is much more the infrastructure, the server side of things. So, you know, you mentioned that this requires a different kind of expertise um, that, you know, a lot of people are addressing layer one and layer two and layer two. We have things like lightning. We have, you know, things like side chains and we have things like zero knowledge proofs that are trying to address, you know, the transactions per second and this notion of state um, and to try to, you know, obviously almost try to compress the block sizes in some cases. Um, so there's a lot of other iterations around that, but you're at the you're at the ground level. You're at the foundational level. You're at layer zero. So there were the different kind of expertise. What does that mean when you say that? What is you know how does your expertise? And I think it's also a good time to talk about what your expertise is. Okay, that that makes sense. So the idea is if you listen to you know the crypto ecosystem, crypto ecosystem is filled with great cryptographers, way better than me, like really super professional people coming. The origins of crypto comes from the cypherpunk movement. And these people are really experts on cryptography and, um, and, and cryptographic um, protocols. However, they give these people any problem in the world and they would look at it 
from their cryptographic lens, right? So the problem here, they'll talk about there is a scalability problem, but rather than pinpointing what that problem is, like we just explained, it isn't really complicated, right? Just figure out where is the bottleneck preventing you from doing larger, more frequent blocks. Then these people will, generally speaking, rather than pinpoint what the problem is, will try, we'll try to say, oh, we have a problem. Let's try a different solution on top of it. So if you're talking about lightning, as an example, lightning is the idea of, and, and side channels idea that for every transaction that I do on chain, I'll do X transactions off chain. Now this makes sense or, or it's great. Like you can have the blockchain process just three transactions per second, but if you do a thousand off chain transaction for every one on chain transaction, then, okay, you increase the capacity by 1,000x. The problem is that actually making that work is extremely complex. The reason sharding and the reason lightning is taking years and required to take a few more years before you, we can expect anything mature to come out of it, if it works, is it because it is objectively complicated. Now, my expertise and our expertise at BlocksRoute, and by the way, we're called BlocksRoute because we route blocks. This is what we do. So our expertise is networking expertise. As a networking expert with, again, PhD in computer networks, my co-founder Alex has um, an NSF award for net neutrality. He's on the steering committee and I think also the founding committee of Google um, MLab for net neutrality. So he's a net neutrality expert. Um, what we do is to say, listen, the problem isn't layer one. Layer one is the blockchain. And it isn't layer two, trying to build something on top of the blockchain. The problem is the network infrastructure, which is underneath the blockchain. Okay, currently you're using your internet service provider. You're, you're using AT&T or using Comcast or whoever is your ISP. The bottleneck is there. It's about sending a lot of data to a lot of people. Now, if the internet architect Oh, sorry, the internet architecture today was different than it is today. So if it was possible to create a block and then rather to send it to one person who then has to send it to a different person, if it was possible to send it to everybody together, a broadcast primitive, then the problem would be resolved. And this is kind of what we do. The thing is that on the public internet, you can't do that. You can't write numerous addresses on a data packet and says, oh, please send it to everyone. You have to send one to this guy, one to that guy, and one to that guy. So our expertise is in the networking domain. And we call it layer zero because we're underneath the blockchain. I'm not trying to do my own blockchain. I'm not trying to compete with other blockchains. I'm trying to compete with AT&T and Comcast. I want to tell everybody, stop using the slow, unsecure network infrastructure that your ISP is providing you will provide you a faster network infrastructure, which is also provably, provably neutral. And that allows every blockchain out there to scale to thousands of transactions per second. Now we're protocol agnostic, we're just faster internet, right? So I don't care who uses it for what and which blockchain wins. And, and I actually think of it, I call it I expect it to reach the Colosseum of cryptos, okay? I think crypto projects should start fighting with each other, not on price and the market manipulation, but really trying to get to bring real value for real people in the real world. So I want to enable everyone and whoever will do a good job utilizing this capacity will win, right? Will be, will, will actually capture the value, some of the value that it creates for other people. So uh, going back to your question, what is layer zero and what is our expertise? Layer zero just means that we provide a faster internet for blockchain ecosystems. So there have been iterations out there, Orchid and some others out there that are trying to use Filecoin and storage. So there's this notion that we've had, we had the founder of storage on the show. It was actually one of our first guests. There's this notion that Everyone in the world, and there's about 7.4 billion people and about 50% of the world's population have a computer now, I believe. There's this notion that with all the compute power in the world, that if everyone wanted to effectively kind of lease out their excess capacity, and God only knows that we have all very big computers that we 
don't use a lot of that capacity for. So if there is this idea that you could effectively lease up your, your excess capacity and effectively have all that capacity then to create a decentralized internet that would work but it doesn't sound like that's what you guys are doing it sounds like you guys are going from the hardware side of things is that correct so a that's correct and and let's start so um i know there are some things i can tell you with absolute certainty what will work on a like computer network and what won't work and what will be effective and what won't be effective Regarding like the idea of, oh, well, everybody will run their own computer kind of thing, and that will create the internet and the servers. Personally, not as a company. As a company, I support everyone, and everybody can do whatever they want, and feel free to prove me wrong. But if you have ever seen the containers of servers that AWS is using, and the other, you know, Google and Facebook and Baidu, and like, if you think that home computers can compete with that, or I'll say differently, I doubt it that you can provide the same performance or anywhere close to that performance and availability that the existing infrastructure provides with home computers. That's point number one. And point number two, even if you think, oh, that's decentralized, you're missing out on how the internet works. The ISP, the internet service provider that you're using, and the actual wires in the ground that you're using, they're not decentralized. There is a company that owns them. Um, if you're connected from Japan to the rest of the world, you're likely using the uh, like the um, the cable that goes under the sea over there, which is owned, I think, 50% by Google, and I don't remember which other large companies hold the rest of it. You're using that. That company owns that cable. It operates that. It didn't decentralize everything. At best, you decentralize the top layer on top of the stack, which is fine because it probably provides the features that you want. But it isn't true to say, oh, we decentralized it like the internet. No, the internet is not decentralized. It's all the routers connecting everyone. You don't control that, or I don't control that. There is a single, or there are several companies that manage that, that control that, and optimize that. So to, to the, as a starting point, will the excess capacity of our computers will be enough to provide, you know, a similar service to Dropbox? Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. I, I, if I'll have to put money on it, I think not. But again, that doesn't mean that I'm right. Like I might be completely wrong on that. But what's absolutely I know for certain is that it, it didn't decentralize the stack. Now going to what you said, I'm providing, we're not creating a decentralized infrastructure because a decentralized infrastructure has to be trustless and in order to achieve that, you'll have to give up on performance. You have to. It isn't a question. So um, um, what we aim to do, similar to the current like, thing, if you, if you say, well, I run Ethereum nodes, and it's okay for some other company to own the, the internet infrastructure because the end result is trustless and is decentralized and it's neutral and nobody can be banned and nobody can enforce the will on others, we're saying something similar. The idea is for us to say, we provide a faster net, like in network infrastructure, but we built it in such a way that we send data we send data a lot faster, a lot quicker, but we don't know where it came from. We don't know where it's going to. We don't know what it contains. We can only blindly serve everybody else. So we can't censor and we can't discriminate. I can't send it to one person fast and slower to another. I can't ban somebody else from participating because I'm not allowed to for any reason. I can't ban somebody from North Korea because, I don't know, maybe legally I'm not allowed to send anything to and from. But we build the system in such a way that it has our core infrastructure, blockchain, the BDN, the blockchain distribution network, the Akamai for blockchain kind of thing. But it is being utilized by a peer-to-peer -peer system that hides from us where data is coming from, where it's going to, and what it contains. So we provide the performance without requiring everybody to place their trust in our infrastructure. Was that anywhere close to reasonable? <laughs> Yeah, that's that's very reasonable, and I'm actually I'm I'm getting to the point where you're talking to me about this, and I'm actually starting to want to use it myself. Um, uh, good, good. That means I'm doing a good job, I guess. You're doing a great job. Um, so in the, in the old days, and I shouldn't say that because that's the, that will make us feel old, right? right? Yes, that's demeaning to myself and to everyone else. Um, but with 
packet delivery. So you had, you know, the protocol layer, you had, you know, HT, you know, you basically had, you know, iterations around kind of creating delivery mechanisms. Um, you had effectively security levels on that. You had SSL, you had other security features on there that were meant to keep it secure. And, you know, I always like saying this on the show is that the internet that we have today the web that we have today is really not what we were supposed to have. We were supposed to have free transmission of information that, you know, we weren't supposed to have ransomware and, you know, things that were, you know, blacking and blocking spam. We weren't supposed to have all that, but, you know, at the, you know, one of the core things that we had, and I think it was Andreessen that put it on, you know, with Netscape was SSL with creating security features on there. So, you know, effectively sending packets of information, there was some sort of security on there. How does it work with Blocksroute? What kind of security features do you guys have? Okay, so so the idea is, and let's you know what, let, let, let's not assume that the, the that our audience know how the internet works. So the idea is that if you have some information on your computer and you need to send it, like you want to go to Facebook, right? So you send a request to their servers. So whatever data you send and whatever data you receive, the idea that you give it to your computer, your computer chops it into tiny, tiny pieces. These are packets and they send them away. And some of them are being sent one way and some are being sent another way, depending on the status, because the way the conditions of the, the network infrastructure change as you go. Sometimes there is more congestion, sometimes less. But the idea is that take any information, send it to somebody else, and if some packet got lost along the way, the other side will send you back, will say, oh, I got packet one, two, three, four, and six, but I'm missing five. So you will send him that. And this is how the internet generally works. This is how we can, even though the internet is not guaranteed to work, right? You send 10 packets and maybe only nine will arrive. But even if they, you as a user, you don't feel that because we built a mechanism that allows you allows us to identify something went missing and ask for it and then get it afterwards. So this is how the internet works, generally speaking. Now, going to how Blockstrap works, the idea is fairly simple. Your node, or if you, let's say that you're running a Bitcoin node, and again, it doesn't matter which blockchain, just easy. It's always easy to talk about Bitcoin because everybody are most familiar with it, and it's kind of like the simplest example. The idea is that if you run a Bitcoin node, the Bitcoin node doesn't know if you're connected to AT&T or Comcast or, or anybody else. The same way, it shouldn't know that you're using Blocksroute either. So it should, like, it's agnostic to the blockchain. The only thing that matters is that he needs to send blocks outside faster and re or really fast and hear about blocks from the outside really fast. And the way we make it work is the following. If you run a node, we give you a small piece of open source code. That's your gateway. Now, don't change your code implementation, not the protocol, not to, don't change anything in what you do. But take this code, this gateway, and run it on the same machine that you run your node. And if your node, if your Bitcoin node or Ethereum node is connected to this peer and that peer and that peer, so it's connected to other peers, add this gateway just like any other peer. Only, only it's a peer that sits on the same machine, okay? It's a friendly neighbor peer. Your node doesn't know that there's anything unique about that peer. However, every time you send a block to that peer, it sends it to everybody else so much faster, and it will tell you about blocks from the outside that much faster. So you can do thousands of transactions per second rather than three transactions per second. Now, how does it actually work, right? What does a gateway do? Well... The gateway receives the block and he sends it to Blocksroute, okay, to the BDN itself, which broadcasts it to everybody else. Now, I won't go into how we make it a thousand times, like, like to support thousands of transactions per second, but honestly speaking, the performance piece is the easy piece. We can actually do a lot more than we're doing right now, but it will require more sophisticated methods, but that's the easy piece. But how do you make sure that Blocksroute can't discriminate and can censor based on what's inside the block, where is it coming from, or where is it going to? Because um, the worst case example, uh, as I see it, is that if we just create, if we don't do any security features, we, if we don't hide these things from ourselves, then tomorrow the NSA can come knocking on my door saying, 
oh, here's a list of addresses which we suspect of terrorism. You're not allowed to relay any block or any transaction that contained them. And then I will have the power to censor, right? If I receive a block that contain that touches one of these addresses, I will block it. And all of a sudden, everybody has to trust me, right? Or everybody has to trust blocks route. And I don't want to be able, I don't want even to be, I don't want everybody to trust and say, well, listen, we're the good guys. I don't want to have the power to do that. So in order to prevent us from doing these malicious things, the idea that when the gateway receives the block, then, or let me take a step back, we're hiding three, three um, attributes, what the block contain, where it's from, and where it's going to. So to prevent us from knowing what the block contains, the no, let's say that you mined a new block or you heard about a new block, you give it to the gateway. The gateway receives the block, it compresses it, but that's kind of like on the performance side, but it encrypts it. It uses encryption and it sends the block encrypted to blocks route. So we can't discriminate based on what's inside it because we don't know it, right? We can't discriminate based on content. And we broadcast it to everybody else. And the original gateway that send the block, will only send out the key to the other gateways after he heard that they have received the block. Okay, so the idea is that the content is revealed only after it's too late for Bloxroute to do everything about it. So a gateway, send the block to Bloxroute, and then wait for the other gateway to tell, oh, I got this thing, oh, I got that thing, because gateway tell each other, they create a peer-to-peer -peer system, and they tell each other, the hash of what they got. Once he hears from the other gateways, they have received the block, only then does it send out the key. So we can't discriminate based on the content of the block because that is only revealed after we already gave it to everybody. Now, the, like once I give it to you, your gateway is open source, which you run on your own machine. I can't take it back in any way. So does that kind of, did that kind of make sense? why we can discriminate based on the content of the block. It sounds like you're using a little bit of the hash time lock contracts. Is that kind of what that is? So uh, we are doing something simpler than that. So the, the hash time lock is to say, oh, up until some, some time, nobody can see what's inside it. But that is sophisticated. We're doing so, everything that we do is almost like, like dead simple. It's elegant. It's powerful. But at the end of the day is, okay, I send out an encrypted Data. I send it to everybody else. And then my gateway wait to hear from the other gateways. Oh, we received this thing. Oh, we received that thing. And once he knows we had sent it to everybody else, only then does it send out the encryption key. So the content, what's inside it, nobody knows. Blocks out. I can't say, oh, I'm not going to propagate this block because it contains specific addresses because I don't know what's inside it. And if I know, it means that the gateway had it. It means that I already sent it to all the gateways, and the original gateway sent out the encryption key. So, uh, hash time lock is something more sophisticated. And this goes back to what we said earlier: how cryptographers will try to solve every problem in the world with sophisticated cryptographic methods. I have nothing against like hash time lock, but it's not necessarily the best tool for every problem out there. Um, so that's why we can dis so you were saying? Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think, you know, simple stupid is not necessarily the worst thing in the world. Um, you know, we don't need to reinvent the wheel every single time, especially if the wheel is already purposeful. Yeah, but the, wheel, the wheel works. Now, right. um, what, what, one more point to say. Um, in order to, to prevent us from discriminating based on, oh, well, I don't know what's inside it, but maybe it came from North Korea and Blockstart is not allowed to send anything to or from North Korea, then gateways, rather than send it directly to Blockstart, they relate through other gateways, kind of like Tor is doing. So the idea is that that North Korean node or gateway will send an encrypted block to a gateway, let's say in Europe, and that um, gateway in Europe will send us the encrypted block. And I don't know what's inside it. I don't really know where it came from, right? I don't know that it came from North Korea. I got it from a gateway in Europe. And the same on the receiving end, right? Gateway can relay blocks to one another. So that North Korean, and sorry, like I apologize for the North Korean nation for always giving them as an example, but that gateway can ask a gateway in Australia to relay blocks to him. So I sent it to Australia. I don't know that it went after that to somewhere I'm not supposed to. All I know is that I sent pieces of data 
which I don't know what they contain. I am completely oblivious to what they contain, where they came from, or where they're going to. So I can't discriminate and I can't censor based on these parameters because I simply don't know them. And so we kind of glossed over this, but we I think it's more important to kind of hit on this. So this is more of a physical infrastructure play. And so there are already stacks all over the world that have obviously the types of containers that you alluded to that are the kind of grade that is necessary for, you know, proper systems to run and process uh, the data that gets trans uh, transmitted. So do you need to actually have physical servers all around the world or can you repurpose systems already in place? How does it actually, how do you get to scale? So if you want to make it work, just, just to make it work, then we're utilizing, you know, AWS and Google Cloud and Baidu. So when, and, um, and digital ocean, and you want to be on numerous platforms and numerous cloud providers in numerous jurisdictions. But the idea is, okay, use a lot of them. So you're not dependent on each one of them, and it just works outside of the box. Does it make sense for Bloxroute to move to its own infrastructure? It might from a cost-effective purpose, right? I might be able, rather than route that data through um, um, existing infrastructure, it might make sense for me to deploy my own infrastructure, but that won't change the performance. It might make it cheaper for me. Um, but there is great value in actually deploying on existing infrastructure because I covered why we are provably neutral. But one last super important piece is that we don't want to be the single point of failure, right? It can't be that we scaled all blockchain to thousands of transactions per second, but if we go down, everything comes crashing, right? That's a deal breaker. That can't be. So by open, but by open sourcing our code and we start by open sourcing our gateway, but we'll open source our entire code base. I will I allow anybody out there in the world, if you're a miner, if you're a pool, if you're a big business, if you're an exchange, if you're Coinbase, if you want to make sure that you hear about blocks and you send and, and your blocks goes to other people, then you can deploy a copy, a backup of blocks route. And that backup sits there and it's not doing anything. And you can only do that by utilizing existing like cloud providers. The, the 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 importance and the role of these backups is that in the doomsday scenario that we're being shut down by the government or meteors hit our servers or whatnot, and which would never, never, ever happen in reality. But for that doomsday scenario, these backup networks, we do a hot swap. Gateways hop to utilize them, the backup networks, instead of Bloxroute. So everything continue to operate. So it's not as cost effective as Bloxroute, a single system that supports everyone. It's not as cost-effective as if we deploy our own infrastructure, but it makes us not the single point of failure. So that's kind of like the importance of you and, and benefits of utilizing over existing cloud providers. Now, if, if we're being honest for a second, my chance of deploying an infrastructure where, which outperforms Google Facebook, Amazon, and Baidu is very, very, very small. These people actually literally go to the trouble of investing a few billions of dollars of putting like wires in the ground. Um, I can at best be close to as good as them, but utilizing numerous cloud providers really provide the robustness that we want with the performance. And so in this new world that we're living in right now, where we're starting to build either physical walls or digital walls, or we're starting to have trade wars. And this is not something that we necessarily hit on before, but now that I know that you're working you know, with AWS and Baidu and others out there, and so there seems to be this impending war between the United States and Hawaii, and there's, you know, they accuse them of, you know, all sorts of nasty things. And so is there ever a point in time where you're, you, you have, you mentioned like a doomsday where, you know, these companies decide no more blocks out. We don't like what you're doing. You know, do you think that's, it, it could ever come to that? Or do you think that you know, what you're doing so, provides so much you know benefit so to them? I actually had an interesting discussion with um, Silvio from MIT, the, the guy behind um, Algorand and, and, you know, the Turing Award winner. Um, and 
it's his take and listen, like we should listen to somebody. Generally speaking, we should be listening to people that have a Turing award. I mean, and he said, people think Bitcoin and blockchain are bulletproof and will always work. If you think that currently Bitcoin can go down, if the US government and China decide to close all packets and all data going between the, or, you know, China can close its borders completely, shutting down all the mining operations in there, it is possible for them to do that. So when I think of Bloxroute, the important thing is that Bloxroute doesn't add any attack vectors. Okay, so the idea is that, okay, if we're thinking about like a trade wars and what will happen if AWS decides to, well, if a, if Amazon decides to close Blockstart, I don't really care because I have five other providers which I'm utilizing. But what if all of them together decide that they want to shut Blockstart? Well, this is the equivalent of what if they wanted to shut down Ethereum nodes or Bitcoin nodes, right? The idea, like, like if you look like majority of them are running on AWS today. And if they do that, they can say, well, how about we stop all Bitcoin traffic, generally speaking? We know which port it's using, right? Or we, we can identify based on, on, on the network parameters and, and kind of like the traffic um, and characteristics. We can identify and try to block them. So today, where we are right now, we're not there yet. It's not bulletproof today because the network, the, the infrastructure out there today can actually do a lot of harm. They see what you're sending and they can do a lot. What we're doing is really say, listen, I want to offer an alternative. It offers the same service, only much, much better. And we're provably neutral in a way that the RNs aren't. So the idea is that like, I want, we're utilize, utilizing gateways, et cetera. So we don't know where it came from, where it's going and what it contains. That's not like the internet service providers who do know where it came from and where it's going and what it contains. So we're trying to make it strictly better than the situation than the current situation, which which I'm I'm getting the question this point that you brought up a lot because most people are unaware how the internet infrastructure looks looks at 2019. Most of the traffic out there today goes through the data centers of three major companies, right? So you, you think of Amazon, you think of Facebook, you think of Google, you think of Baidu. Most traffic goes through them because they are the fastest route to get from one side of the world to another. Right. We're trying to make it better, but in the process that we're actually showing, we're, 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 we're showing to other people, listen, you thought it's all decentralized. It really isn't. There is an entire infrastructure that you're dependent on and you should try and start making it better. I 100% agree. You know, everyone was, you know, back about two years ago when the whole DAP kind of explosion happened. It was all built on Infura and Infura works directly with AWS. And so not really decentralized and everyone kind of realized that eventually it's like oh okay we're really not we're not in decentralized fantasy land right now we're, we're still using centralized systems uh, which can obviously censor and shut things down to your point um and so lastly i wanted to hear about the roadmap i saw that you know, there was mentioning about q3 and q4 of this year that you were going to start laying out some merchant specific features and so we've talked a lot on the show recently about adoption and about on ramps what's happening there so um we have several things on the table the idea is that by our goal the only thing that we do really is provide faster internet right for 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 blockchain ecosystems now um, exchange. I, I met um, 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 Andreas Brecken on New York Blockchain Week, like, like just recently. He said, "Well, if you guys tell me all the transactions from everybody else, right? We're broadcast. Every everybody tells us everything, and we broadcast it to everybody else. If you can tell me as soon as possible about the transaction from out there, that reduces my risk. So I don't need you to do anything about it. I will analyze it. I will do all that." But exchanges are worried about double spends and a few other things. And if you, if you're looking into to do into doing things like zero conf, which or instant transactions, the idea that you accept a transaction even before it got into the blockchain, then you want to know about transaction from the outside a lot faster. So that's one feature that exchanges came to us and said, "Oh, we we would be happy." to get and, and hear about information from the outside. Another thing is that um, if you're thinking about miners and, and pools, 
currently, um, I mean, you have a few very, very large pools and everybody else are doing something called spy mining. Like they connect to other pools so they can hear about them fast. We're kind of doing like spy mining for everyone, right? You connect to us and everybody hear about everybody else a lot faster. So everybody are slightly or are better off than they were before us. So that's something that miners and pools had asked us. Um, we have a few other things. Most of it, I'm not yet willing, like I'm not at the point that I'm willing to share in terms of actual merchants and like the, the, the added value that we give them. So we're slightly secretive at this point, um, mostly because I want to have the wall factor and kind of, oh, these guys are doing that. So I'm, I'm, so, some things we keep like, like still up our sleeve at that. But the idea is that there, if you want, I, I think that the major problem for blockchains and crypto today is not a technological one. Like actually getting people to utilize it and on-ramp it and like whether it's merchants. And I know, I don't know if you're familiar with um, the recent news about um, um, how, okay, Whole Foods and Starbucks and a few others can start accepting crypto using the backend by Gemini, Gemini but it's like a, a custodial wallet. Can we take that into somewhere which is non-custodial wallet? These kind of things, most of them benefit greatly from um, 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 reducing the time that you hear about the information from the outside. Oh, one important thing that I am able to share at this point is that currently, if you speak with Bitcoin users and pretty much everybody, any blockchain that is heavily utilized, so literally today that's Bitcoin and Ethereum, everybody are talking about the fees. One of the things that we could utilize our very unique point is to add a fee reduction service. The idea is that, oh, rather than pay $3 to be in the next block, if you have a transaction, you want it in the next block, you don't know how much you're supposed to be paying. Maybe a dollar and a half or maybe 50 cents is enough, but you're not sure. So you're putting $3 into that. So you might be paying 10x too much. So adding a fee reduction service, helping users to minimize their fees and sometimes our end goal is actually to take them to be everywhere to be subsent um, um, fees, but fee reduction service is something that we're working with um, um, wallets on. Like we're talking with very, like with BRD and Edge and a few others. Um, um, so that's another thing that's that we have up our sleeve. The proverbial gas fees that everyone is worried about. I, uh, I, so, 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 so let's. I, I we're slightly going overboard here with the timing, but let's talk about that. If a blockchain doesn't scale or its scalability is very limited, then by definition, you'll have high fees. It's, it's not a question of if or like this is this is how it's going to be because you have more people who want to use it than you have capacity. And so people start to bid against one another and 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 and, and try. Oh, you put a cent. I'll put two cents. Oh, you put two cents. I'll put five cents, etc. Um, this is part of the design by adding scalability. Our end goal. Like when we're talking, we want to do to support hundreds of thousands of transactions per second, not just compete, not just compete with credit card companies, not just thousands. We want to support micropayments. We want to support dApps, non-payment transactions. If we can increase the capacity so the capacity exceeds the demand always, then users should be paying tiny, tiny payments as fees, right? They should be paying like a cent or a fraction of a cent. So users should be paying much lower fees and miners or validators, each transaction will give them a tiny amount, but they'll be doing thousands of transactions per second and there are 31 million seconds in each year. So that will allow miners to actually make a hundred times more in fees in total. So but by adding capacity, we actually want to like reach this win-win-win scenario where everybody are very happy, right? Users with lower fees and miners with more fees in total. This is becoming one of the more important conversations we've had on the show in the last few months. So I really, uh, I really appreciate, uh, obviously, your understanding and your information that you're providing for all of us on this. This is really, really, really good. Um, the last thing that we like to do on the show, as I let you know, 
is just to kind of get a sense of you a little bit more. Obviously, there is Ori at Bloxfro, but then there is Ori who is reading, who is writing, who is listening to music, who is eating, who is living his life as a human on this planet. So if you could, we'd like to talk about just like what you might be reading for fun. Hopefully, you get to do that a little bit. And what type of music you might be listening to while at work or traveling. And that really just helps us get an understanding of you a little bit better. So I'm going to have a funny answer to what are you reading? What I'm currently reading is healthy sleep habits for happy babies, because I am a recent father. Um, um, Lily, my daughter, was born 10 weeks and a day ago. So she's like, I'm, 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 this is all very new for me and for my wife. So um, I'm reading just for fun is not something that I get to do these days. If I have to say, oh, like, if you could, what would you, would you read? Well, I'm one of those who are old school. Like I read the Game of Thrones kind of like books. I think I read the first one 15 years ago. And while everybody out there are enjoying the last season of, you know, the TV show, George R.R. R. Martin, the author, like owes me two books. Like like the, the, the books are like two seasons behind the TV <laughs> series. So I'm like, I'm, I'm very frustrated with it. It's kind of like I'm, I waited three years be- between book two and book three, then another two years between book three three and book four and like i'm waiting for years for the guy to finish the book so i could read them so and and i i'm kind of like i'm not going to see the show i'm going to wait for the books although i bet somebody would ruin it for me at some point um so that's what i would read if i got a chance but honestly like like my personal life are all about like like lily my my my, my like and 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 figuring it out what it's like what it's like to be a dad and a startup ceo at the same time it's not necessarily that easy, but it's really, really fun. It is. It's uh, as someone who has a few, and obviously, you know, I know that world too. So it is uh, a never-ending day. You probably, you know, the few hours of sleep that you're getting, you know, are few and far. And so you all can't see Orion. I can see him now. We're talking, you know, via Skype. And so I have to say, I'm commending you. You look like you're, you've, you got yourself together this morning. You had a few cups of coffee. You were able to. I, I thought it might be a video one. I said, like, I can't come, you know, with disheveled hair and kind of like wearing, I don't know what it's coming, but like, you have to look semi-reasonable. <laughs> and so the last thing that we like to do on the show is for the listeners, if they want to find out more about Blocks Route, um, if there's any way for them to participate either vis-a-vis, you know, in the network or as an investor or learn more about what you're doing or learn more about you, feel free to drop a few, you know, either a link or something there where people can find out more about you. So, so um, um, we actually, I'm, I'm very proud of our two minute explainer video. It does a great job of kind of like, oh, this is a problem. This is how we solve it. So if you go today to blocksroute.com. So again, we're called Blocksroute because we route blocks, but we write it with an X. So B-L-O-X-R-O-U-T-E.com. So if you go there, you can see the video. It's really helpful. There are a million other videos of, of where we explain the different things that we do. For investors and people who are like, oh, this is interesting. I would like to take a, like be a part of that. Blockstart provides scalability for all blockchains without a, co- a token. God forbid, we don't have a utility token that you have to buy if you want to get all of that. But we do have a security token, which we allow to people to invest in us. So the idea is that we make revenues and rather than these revenues, rather than them go to the company, we create a capped amount of tokens, which we call BLXR. So if we created 100 of them, if you own one, then 1% of the revenues go to you. Not profits, you don't really care what are our expenses, but revenues. So as a starting point, we hold all the tokens and we get this is our revenue stream. But we would like people from the ecosystem to be invested in us because we want them to be a part of Blockstart success. We want the idea is that for everybody to be very, very happy with Blockstart, Blockstart should be the easiest decision anybody ever made. So we have this um, um, venue to invest in Blockstart. I didn't go on the business side at all in this conversation, but you can find all that also in Blockstart.com. And of course, and anybody can feel free, like I'm on Twitter, like, like it's, it's easy to find me. Feel free to DM, ask me questions, pin me down. Oh, why this? Why are you doing this? This doesn't make sense. I'm, I'm always happy to get feedback, especially strong opposition, because then I'm like, oh, we can discuss it. And then I get people say, well, you know what? Oh, that kind of makes sense. 
So feel free to reach out to anybody out there. So I can say unequivocally, we're going to have Ori back on because this was a really, really interesting conversation. I love talking about internet kind of architecture, how it relates to crypto and blockchain infrastructure. This is a really important conversation for you folks to listen to because the infrastructure really needs to be kind of hardened and built and supported. And Ori and the guys at Blockstart are doing that. So check them out. Thank you, Ori, for being on the show. We'll have you on again soon. Take care. Thank you for having me. For more notes from this past episode about our guest, please go to www.ar.ca slash base layer. Nothing stated on this podcast should be taken as investment advice, which would require a thorough assessment of each investor's personal financial profile and risk tolerance. Statements regarding past performance are not necessarily indicative of future returns. If you like what you're listening to on base layer, let us know. Subscribe, give us a like, or hit us up on Twitter, Arca at Arca, or myself, David Nage at DavidJN79. Let us know, and we'd love to obviously hear from you. For additional resources to help sophisticated listeners like yourself learn about the digital asset space and the financial terms you understand, please visit www.ar.ca for articles, marketing commentary, videos, and more.